Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, DJ Moran, and I'm very happy you're joining me here today. I published the first podcast of Functionally Speaking over seven years ago, and I think the last original podcast was about five years ago. Uh, I've had some significant interruptions to my podcasting since then, uh, primarily because back in 2010, I founded Pixlide Consulting. Uh, Essentially, it's an organization focused on bringing ACT training to companies and corporations to help them strengthen their behavioral flexibility. Uh, So we focus our efforts on helping leaders engage in more mindful behavior, uh, tech workers be more innovative, and I really love helping frontline workers be more situationally aware on the job site so they can increase their commitment to safety. Uh, In fact, I even wrote a book called Building Safety Commitment based on the ACT principles. So I invested a lot of time in that startup consulting company, and it was tough to dedicate my time to functionally speaking. And now that things have evened out, uh, I want to start doing some more podcasts. And I'd love it if it was more interactive. So let me know what you want to hear about. Uh, I committed myself to become an ACT clinician at the 1994 Association for Behavior Analysis Conference. That's where I met Steve Hayes and befriended uh, Robin Walser. In 2008, I published Act in Practice with Patty Bach, which was a great learning experience for me. And I've done over 100 Act or CBT plus mindfulness workshops um, over the last several years. So I'd be glad to answer questions, do case conceptualizations, uh, or interview people who you suggest. Um, Just get in touch with me. Uh, You can tweet me at Dr. DJ Moran. That's D-R-D-J-M-O-R-A-N, or email me, and you can find my email address on the ACT or the RFT listserv. Uh, But enough of this housekeeping. I want to move forward with the content of this podcast. Uh, This week, I had the distinct pleasure of talking to Dennis Tersh, a person who I greatly admire. Um, In our conversations in the past, he's given me interesting perspectives on mindfulness and Buddhism as well as cool points of view on clinical psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. I enjoy hanging out with Dennis at ACBS conferences because he's such a neat guy to talk to. He's also a dedicated guitarist, and I've heard him play at our conferences and in in his recordings online. Uh, And I've always had an affinity for musicians that play original music, so I was very jazzed to uh, talk to Dennis and interview him for Functionally Speaking. And I was really enthusiastic about talking to him about his new book, uh, The Science of Compassion. Just the title is intriguing for me because not only am I interested in bringing science into the therapy room, but also making sure that we can blend that science into a real, genuine, human connectedness uh, that sometimes is missing when one aims to just do straight-up behavior therapy interventions. So I like that blending of compassion with science. Dennis and I have had several conversations about this topic over the years, so I'm glad he was willing to join me on this podcast. Dennis, thanks a lot for joining me on Functionally Speaking. Thanks for making the time to talk to me. Well, thanks a lot for having me, DJ. I've really been looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, and I was wondering, because you've written this really awesome book, Um, The ACT Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Compassion, Tools for Fostering Psychological Flexibility. You wrote it with uh, Benji Schoendorf and Laura Silberstein. What drew you 
to the work of compassion-focused therapy? Well, originally on a personal uh, sort of road, I had studied Buddhism and uh, meditation for a long time before becoming a therapist. And when I began doing cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of it was informed by concepts like mindfulness, like distancing, and like deliberately cultivating a compassionate uh, way of viewing our own experience and the experience of others. Now, it turns out I was sort of doing traditional CBT a little bit wrong, and uh you know, I wasn't emphasizing rationality as much as function and workability. So when I encountered acceptance and commitment therapy and the work of my friend Paul Gilbert in compassion-focused therapy, it felt a little bit like coming home because, you know, both of those methods, although they come from different scientific traditions, they really do emphasize having a warm accepting and courageous perspective on oneself in pursuit of aims, you know, in one's life. So you were able to essentially blend something that was resonating with you while you were doing the CBT work and your Zen Buddhist uh, background and your just your own personal care into your therapy and that, that drew you to uh, compassion-focused therapy. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we always want to rely on evidence-based methods and, you know, look to the science and and the research. But I I think all all therapists and practitioners also uh, are their own scientists in their own life. And they they have a sense of what is working with their clients and with themselves. And, you know, if, if you can use that as a compass to guide you on your journey as a psychologist, psychotherapist, and still keep your feet firmly grounded in evidence-based principles. That that feels right to me. Okay. All right. And so you're finding, as, as a scientist, and you're saying that all mental health practitioners need to be their own scientists, that blending compassion into the therapeutic endeavor and blending evidence-based practices into the therapeutic endeavor is going to get us workable ends. I'm wondering, how would you define what compassion means? Well, that's a hugely important question, DJ, because I think a lot of uh, folks in our culture have a very different sense of what compassion means than some CFT and ACT practitioners. And the definition we work from is based in a very old definition, but it, it's, I think it's very solid, and it's a sensitivity. Compassion can be defined as a sensitivity to the presence of suffering in oneself and others coupled with a motivation to do something about it and to take action. So it's more than just an emotion of sympathy. It's an awareness of the presence of uh, suffering, pain, and difficulty, and a motivation to take action and, uh, you know, move towards the alleviation and prevention of suffering. Right. So what I hear you saying, it it requires some kind of engagement and, and recognition that something is going on where someone is suffering, maybe even yourself, and you have a motivation to alleviate it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really big part of it. Right. I appreciate the way that you seem to have discriminated it away from not just feelings of sympathy, because you and I have had conversations in the past, and I wrestled with that, is is what we're trying to do with compassion-focused therapy 
just have the clinician feel some level of sympathy for the client, but that is not what compassion-focused therapy is all about exclusively. No, it really, really isn't. I mean, if we think about, you know, the idea that compassion is something soft or that acceptance is something weak or that mindfulness is something new-agey, you know, and then we think about what it would be like to have a loved one, like I'm thinking of my nine-year-old niece, Lily, whom I really love, and if, if she were in trouble, if she were in uh, a house and the house was on fire and people were telling me, no, don't go in to try to help her, what would my frame of mind be? I would be mindful and attuned to that present moment with flexible, focused attention. I would be willing to accept risk and danger and discomfort, and I would be so moved by the presence of her potential suffering and danger that I'd be willing to go into the fire right. to face that. And that's what right. we really mean by compassion. Okay. Yeah, I like that your book um, that you wrote with Benji and Laura really really does have a focus on action. It's not just um, focused on sensitivity, but also the sensitivity leads to attention and behavior um, and, and alleviation. Uh, I think it's a really neat book. Oh, thanks a lot. I yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so your book, I, I've been reading it, it says that um, what psychological flexibility, which is a, essentially a, a concept that's been around the ACT community for a while, um, does require a psychology of engagement and a psychology of alleviation. And if I, if I may just kind of talk about these uh, bullet points, your um, model here is that there's a psychology of engagement that requires a motivation to care for well-being, sensitivity, Sympathy, distress tolerance, empathy, and non-judgment. And I just have to say that that just sounds so much like what acceptance and commitment therapy is trying to bring to the therapeutic endeavor. And what I like about your focus is you're bringing some heart, some, so, some uh, additional um, personal qualities of the clinician to bear on, on that side of the, on the hexagon model. And then you've got another part, you know, the psychology of alleviation that requires attention, uh, reasoning, uh, behavior, and sensory experiencing. And, and those are the kinds of things that I think really fit well with, you know, helping people come in contact with their values and the client and the clinician working together on committed action. So it really sounds like what we're doing uh, when, we, when we become more compassionate is we're really amplifying what the ACT model is all about through the way you guys are talking about it. Would you resonate with that yourself? Yeah, it's really cool to hear you describe it that way. I mean, one of the things that was moving to me uh, was, you know, having studied CFT with Paul Gilbert and looked at his model of compassion as an evolutionary um, set of responses. So big, big deal in CFT is that human beings have evolved to, you know, require extended caregiving and that we're born very fragile and we have a, you know, a low birth rate and in, in the survival of our infants and adolescents until our fabulous brain matures right. really depends on nurturance and care and protection. So Paul drew upon the uh, research on um, caregiving behaviors and Tara Eisenberg and Tanya Singer's research on empathy, and he came up with these, you know, qualities that are common qualities for 
and expressions of compassion and caregiving uh, a long time ago, like in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And um, when I was learning that and practicing as an ACTS practitioner and being familiar with the psychological flexibility model, I looked at the two of them and my uh, colleague, Laura Silverstein, also looked at them. And we were kind of like in a supervision group and working on the kind of interventions we were doing. And it was pretty um, striking to see that the principles of psychological flexibility related not only to compassion, but to these evolved caregiver behaviors. And that, to me, felt very validating of the psychological flexibility model, because it meant to me that when human beings are functioning at their best and they're able to pursue things that matter and live lives of purpose and meaning and vitality, that these are, we're actually living evolutionary principles that are adaptive and that sort of maximize variation, selection, and retention. So for me, evolution really is the bridge between this compassion model of psychology of engagement, psychology of alleviation, and acceptance and commitment. And they all seem to me different lenses that we're looking at this uh, evolved, adaptive human functioning, which is like motivated and caring and courageous. It is an exciting time for us to be working because of what you just got done saying. I mean, we're talking about integrating interdisciplinary ideas in order to reduce suffering. I mean, everything you just got done saying is, is really showing that we're weaving together what we know as, as evidence-based and empirically supported, and we can apply it at this point. And it's not just so theoretical. We actually have a, a, uh, a functional contextualism or philosophy that undergirds all of these things. So I really appreciate the hard work that you and your colleagues have been putting into that, that blending together of, of evidence. That's really fantastic stuff. Well, thanks. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about our community in uh, ACBS that it is very open and, and interested in integration. And like Steve was one of the, you know, number one proponents of CFT and encouraging Paul to disseminate his work and, and also encouraging the, us to better understand the role of compassion. You yeah. know, for, as you know, DJ, for years he's been kind of forwarding this idea of compassion. Right. So I think the community creates the context for us all to really grow together. Yeah. And I would wonder, just along those same lines, because we're talking about application of, of all those materials, I just wanted to get your point of view on, on the area where I'm applying um, acceptance and commitment work. For the last several years, I've been working in corporations to try to improve psychological flexibility on the job. Um, many critics have been harsh about that goal, but when I can explain to them, I've taken the ACT model and really boiled it down to a very practical approach and explain it without all the jargon or touchy-feely kind of stuff, the leaders and the frontline workers resonate with the ACT model. I'm wondering what you might do to increase productivity or reduce stress in the workplace with compassion-focused therapy concepts. Well, one difference in the way people talk when they're doing CFT practice and research and, and, and act work, uh, it's a small difference, but it's worth mentioning, is uh, in CFT we tend to talk a lot about threat-based emotions and their influence on us and um, also, you know, the engagement of stilling, calming, uh, and, you know, compassion-oriented 
emotional experiences. So emotions are spoken about in a more clear sense. And one of the things we know that definitely relates to act and definitely relates to safety is that when people are in a, uh, you know, a, a state of threat, they tend to have narrower attention and they tend to have narrower behavioral repertoires. Okay. And when people are in a state of calm, not like a blissed out, you know, kumbaya calm, but when they're relatively calm and relatively feel like socially safe and secure, but still engaged, under those conditions of emotions, they're more likely to have broader ranges of attention, flexible, focused attention. They're more likely to have broader uh, behavioral repertoires, and they can engage in perspective-taking. Um, we can see that, you know, just from the engagement of the sympathetic nervous system versus the parasympathetic when we're uh, very keyed up, you know, some of the research on um, uh, with police officers and how they perceive, uh, you know, uh, crime scenes under conditions of stress, um, our attention gets very narrow, our experience of time gets very narrow. So part of what achieving mastery or uh, exposure and response prevention uh, involves is developing these broader uh, repertoires and broader attention under, you know, habitually, typically uh, repertoire narrowing, attention narrowing, uh, stimuli, and those conditions. Steve talks about this, as you know, and Michelle Krask. So part of what I see you doing with these uh, uh, people in industry and in business is helping them to train, to deploy a way of being that allows them to see things broadly and yet still maintain their focus. And if people are habitually under threat conditions and responding with an excessive dominance of threat-based emotions and, and that kind of programming, they're likely to have more workplace accidents and they're, and they're likely to function at, uh, less effectively. So part of cultivating um, a sense of themselves as uh, wise, strong, and engaged, having a real connection to their commitment to safety and the safety of the people around them will allow them to find a still point. And, and, and CFT work is very embodied in the way that yoga is very embodied. Okay. There's a lot of attention on emotions in the body, the, the heart rate, the length of the breath, and the use of imagery to create kind of centering activities. So I think those pieces of compassion and psychological flexibility that involve stabilizing emotional experiences would be what, what CFT would, you know, uh, bring to the party. Right. Cool. Yeah, there's uh, been a lot of interest about bringing mindfulness to the workplace, and it seems like what your perspective on it is, it, it gives it a context. It's not just about being in the moment, but for that kind of outcome. And I would say that that kind of outcome would be um, definitely beneficial uh, to the workplace and, and obviously to the workers. That's great. Um, because you're such a, a big mindfulness enthusiast, I'm wondering, if you wouldn't mind sharing with uh, listeners, what is your preferred way to do practice and how do you introduce mindfulness to your clients? Well, those are two important uh, questions, and, you know, my personal practice has changed over the years, and at times it's been uh, longer form, um, more formal kind of meditation from, 
you know, Buddhist traditions or Sufi traditions and things like that. And as I practiced more sitting meditation and mindfulness training throughout the day as a clinician, that um, became less of an important part of my uh, off-hours practice, if you will. You know, because if you're doing several of these practices throughout a day, um, what I found more interesting is to do a brief sitting practice and then bring that into a specific activity. So I try to have a new activity each week. Sometimes I tweet about it, that in addition to sitting practice in psychotherapy sessions and a little bit, you know, in the morning and evening, like I'll choose a specific thing, like focusing on, you know, when I am receiving caring emotions from someone in my life or mindfully uh, writing and working on some writing work and connecting with physical sensation. So I think like applied mindfulness is extremely important. And one of the things we do in compassion work is a lot, is an emphasis on uh, the stabilizing and centering aspects of mindfulness uh, meditation, which are relatively, um, I would say relatively uh, underemphasized or not underemphasized, but not as emphasized as much in a lot of modern applied post uh, MBSR mindfulness, which is a big emphasis on like expansiveness and allowing things to be just as they are. But in um, what some uh, psychologists and Tibetan uh, Buddhist thinkers like from Emory University and other places uh, uh, will sometimes call classical mindfulness, which involves both an openness and a stilling, stabilizing experience. One of the practices we do in CFT is called the soothing rhythm breathing practice, which involves deliberately emphasizing the out-breath, deliberately slowing the breathing, engaging um, this kind of uh, breathing that Dick Brown from Columbia calls coherent breathing, okay. where you are slowing down, stabilizing. So with clients, I might introduce this with just like a few brief, very light kind of attention exercises, noticing where you move attention around the body, but not even a whole extended body scan, and then help people learn in just a few minutes about following their breath, slowing it down, and coming into the present moment. And from that kind of point of view, that's how it begins. So it's the kind of thing that you could begin with, and it could be your first practice, and it could also be something you do for 40 years, and maybe maybe the mainstay of your practices is soothing rhythm, breathing, slowing down, and contacting the present moment. Excellent. Yeah, I appreciate that summary. I'm wondering, as a, an accomplished musician, do you harmonize your guitar practice and your playing with what you do as a mindfulness practitioner and, and before you answer i just want to let you know the uh, listeners know that uh, you have been doing some impressive work as a guitarist and um, if you've never been to an act summer institute or a world con you might not know that dennis does a lot of accompanying of the uh of the singers and the songs uh at the uh, entertainment portion of the summer institutes in the world con and so that's how I, I've come to be introduced to you as an excellent guitar player. I'm wondering, do you blend your uh, your your hobby or your um, passion for guitar playing with uh, mindfulness? Well, I, I really love that opportunity to 
back everybody up. We're not, you know, on guitar, and it's a nice, it's a nice way to celebrate with everyone at the end of a long week of working together. Um, and there's a sort of a joyfulness about it, which is really cool. Uh, you know, guitar was a first love for me, and um, it has been a big part of uh, getting to know myself and to know my limitations and to know what it feels like to uh, have personal discipline and to also know what it's like to uh, fail in my personal discipline and then return again to it. Uh, so, And I had the pleasure of working with uh, an organization uh, headed by uh, Robert Fripp for uh, I guess about six or seven years, wow. which really emphasized the, yeah, he was amazing. And the people with him, like Tony Bach or Golden, they're like these amazing guitarists. And, they, and they're very, very dedicated to personal practice, to mindfulness practice, to, um, you know, working with the body and Tai Chi and movement practice. So we would, I would go on a series of retreats with that group of people that really emphasized blending mindfulness and music and looking at the self and, you know, along the same time uh, of really digging into CFT and ACT, that was a main part of the kind of meditation tradition that I was involved in. So uh, it's, you know, it, it's a, it's, a, it's called the Guitar Circle. And if you look up, you know, on the internet, Robert Fripp and the Guitar Circle, there's courses and things like that and that it's extremely cool. act consistent really cool so for me that's like and it could be anything you know it could be bowling it could be driving it could be you're also i know a very accomplished musician it could be music it could be right. you know gardening if we bring mindfulness and we bring ourselves to a practice it gives us an opportunity to really you know grow and and, and know, witness ourselves that is a awesome Awesome point. I mean, we can blend mindfulness into our passions and into everyday life, including the mundane. Being present with it can really essentially um, accelerate the vitality of, of what you're doing. Um, so I appreciate, uh, appreciate your time today and sharing uh, your thoughts about how compassion-focused therapy can be blended into uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. Any final words before uh, we move on? Well, I just uh, I just want to say, like, you know, I, I really appreciate you inviting me to speak with you, and I've so admired the uh, integrated and really pragmatic and real-life boots-on-the-ground approach that you've brought to ACT and brought to the community and, and the places you've brought the ACT work in the world where it's really needed and that makes was a difference in people's lives. Very kind of you to say that. Thank you, Dennis, and thank you also for joining me today. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, DJ. All right. Take care, Dennis. So you are definitely going to want to check out the book, The Act Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Compassion, Tools for Fostering Psychological Flexibility. It's by Dennis Tersch, Benji Schoendorf, and Laura Silberstein. That book has been released by New Harbinger Publications, and it's available on Amazon. And since you're going to Amazon anyway, please make sure you click through the ACBS website in order to get to Amazon. I'm hoping the hyperlink is active on this podcast website, but if you can't find it, simply go to the ACBS website and use the search window to type in raise money. That will get you to the link that you can click through to help ACBS. You see, instead of going right to Amazon with your browser, 
if you click through the ACBS website page, then Amazon donates some of their profits to our organization. So when you find that page on the ACBS website, bookmark that page for all your online shopping needs. Please let me know if you enjoyed this podcast and tell me what you might want to hear about. I have a number of folks who can help me answer your questions and I'm happy to take requests uh, for who to interview or topics to talk about. In the next few weeks, I'm going to do a few other podcasts. I've interviewed Joanne Wright, who is writing a book with Dara Westrup on using ACT in group therapy. So be on the lookout for that. And I also might unearth some interviews I did some years ago with Julie Vargas, uh, who is B.F. Skinner's daughter. And I also did another interview with Kelly Wilson back in the Mindfulness for Two era when that got published. And if you have other ideas that you'd like to discuss, contact me on Twitter at Dr. DJ Moran, D-R-D-J-M-O-R-A-N. Thank you so much for listening to Functionally Speaking.